thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. We've had some audio issues, but we are ready to rock and roll. My name is Hannah, and today we have a briefing in our Culture Z series about the future of activism. So we're bringing together our youth culture practice and our policy and philanthropy practice. We're going to be exploring this topic using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Joining me today is my co-briefer, Molly Barth, our in-house team of experts, Ben, Trevor, and Rob, and we're very excited to be joined by two special guests today. Anna Grace Millward is the CEO of Stash Run, a Silicon Valley startup that's transforming how Gen Z take action on causes together with brands who share their values. And Greg Pepper is the founder of Studio Pepper and the former innovation and impact manager at Unleash. Greg, uh, Anna Grace, we're so happy to have you here today talking with us about this topic. So we know that the internet has redefined what's possible for activists when it comes to advancing social progress. Um, we've got, you know, every Arab Spring, there's a black square on Instagram fiasco. And what we want to focus on today is this big question about what are the new ways in which Gen Zers are organizing and galvanizing on social causes, whether that's about you know, new ways that social activism is impacting their life as employees, or whether that's about what that looks like in the conversation of mental health. We'll start by looking at our cultural zeitgeist map. So we see some things in here that are pretty expected, like polarization or moral imperative. Uh, but Ben, I'd love to put you on the spot and ask what feels unexpected here? What's taking you by surprise when you look at this cultural zeitgeist map? Wow. Uh, put me on the spot here. Yes. Uh, stakeholder activism popping up there in the third is really interesting to me. That's a brand, it's a pretty new EOC that we have. I'm actually really thrilled to see that the AI is now able to pick that up and, and understand how to put that in context. And obviously stakeholder activism suggests an activism coming um, not just from the ground up or from the, you know, the, the, the populace, but like literally from people who have, uh, you know, uh, stakes in an organization. So I'm, I'm thrilled to see that there. I'm very interested to see how this manifests for Gen Z. We're not known for joining a ton of uh, organizations, but it does speak, I think, to the, no the knowledge in corporate and uh, let's call it, you know, nonprofit or whatever, America and, and, and throughout the world that, you know, um, they need to reflect Gen Z values. So it's really cool for me that the AI has figured this out and I'm kind of excited to see it pop up throughout the briefing. Awesome. I love that too. And I think that this first, you know, two signals that we're tagging together really speak to what you were just saying. So let's start by talking about Gen Z activism in the workplace. This first signal includes a lot of very common right-wing tropes about Gen Z. They're a woke mob who wants trigger warnings. They got too many participation trophies. And um, by the way, I would love if we could retire the participation trophy metaphor. It <laughs> has dogged millennials for the last two decades. I think we're done with it. Um, but you know, we want to include the signal because there are some point of views that are really important that help us think about what will workplace activism look like moving forward and what kind of barriers might it face from older generations, from people with different political ideologies. The author in this piece says that any mature adult should know to park their personal politics at the office door and that there's no better time for corporations to stand firm on serving customers, not political ideologies. Obviously, everyone's entitled to their point of view. I will say that what we have seen from studying Gen Z is that a lot of them disagree with that perspective. Multiple studies from reputable places, including some of which are cited in this work, show that Gen Z do not want to set their moral beliefs down for eight hours a day to be a worker. And that even as consumers, they are weighing how brands are perceived to treat their employees as part of their decision-making process. 
by 2030, 30% of the workforce is going to be Gen Z. So that's a lot of people. A very different relationship with their employee when it comes to their personal beliefs. And as this article shows, that sense of wanting to bring your activism to work is likely to be met with some resistance, which is why we're tagging it next signal that shows that, you know, at the same time as they are facing sort of external barriers, a lot of Gen Z themselves are also worrying that words like activism might be a red flag when it comes to being hired. So this is a recent piece in the Washington Post. It reports on Z as a 21-year-old college senior who has been sending out two types of resumes, one that shows off her years as a community organizer and activist, and one that's been scrubbed of all of that content for fear to hurt her chances of landing a job. So this need to be careful with how one presents their politics, particularly felt by Gen Zers of color who worry that community activism is going to be met with bigotry. A lot of them are removing meant things like Black Lives Matter organizing from their resume. As McKellen, who's a director of diversity, inclusion, and belonging at the National Association of Colleges and Employers, says, uh, with disclosure comes exposure. It's always been an act of bravery for job seekers of color to be transparent about community organizing when applying for jobs in a different field, even if the skills are transferable. So looking at these two signals together, question for the, the panel is, you know, as Gen Z ages, so is their relationship to activism and how they engage with their personal beliefs. Up until now, we've seen that Gen Z is very views forward. Do we think as they enter the job market, that's going to continue to be the case for Gen Z? Or are they going to find that there's a need to have a less of a values forward uh, presenting in the workplace and maybe their activism becomes more of something that they're engaging in a personal capacity? Uh, Rob, as our head of the policy and philanthropy practice, I I'd love to get your take on this. Uh, absolutely. You know, in, in thinking first about the workplace signal, you know, I, I think if you look at the full range of stakeholders that sort of comprise this new view around stakeholder capitalism, you know, <clears throat> employees, regardless of their generation, have a, 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 an increasing role to play, right? So that is very true. The pure, pure focus on consumers and shareholders is antiquated, right? So that's, I think, a broader frame. Um, and I think that, yes, we're at this moment now where employers need to think about how to embrace some of the values forward mindsets of young people. Uh, and I think that every organization, as we speak, is in a process of finding that right balance between where do we lean in uh, to these values-based conversations? Where do we invest our time and energy as an organization to embrace them and integrate them? And how do we balance that with being a business, right? Business is business first and foremost. And so I think that every organization should be really drilling into, you know, the purpose side of their brand and how they show up in the world. And then on the other side of things, you know, impact, you know, what are the specific initiatives that we can create and make an impact in the world that makes sense for us as an organization that we know will resonate and create uh, energy and excitement amongst our younger employees. So again, I think that we're in this moment where that balancing act is being really focused on today, tomorrow, the next day. Uh, and when I think it comes to really quickly on the activism piece and the applicant piece, I, I think we have to remember that activism is not new with Gen Z. Uh, young people have driven activism in America for generations. If you look at you know, civil rights and anti-war movements, anti-nuke movements, all the way to a lot of new movements around climate change, you know, th th this is something that young people have driven for quite some time. 
And I really think that at the end of the day, it goes back to the age old framing your candidate story, right? Everything on your resume and in your application should be helping you get that job. And so on your point, Anna, you know, I think that it's about taking things that are transferable and making it make sense for the job at hand. Um, I know that's a very technical way of approaching that, but uh, that was the first thing I thought about there. Um, anybody else on, on the panel like to react to these signals? I think it's definitely important to recognize where the transferable component comes in because as so I as resident Gen Z activist, my LinkedIn header is literally awarded activist and social scientist. So for me, it's right up there in front, but that's because the work that I've done is specifically in that subject area anyway. So that is the base of my work versus someone, especially a person of color, who might be working in a different space that it isn't going to be they are coming in here to do these things specifically. There's definitely going to be attention within that application role. Uh, the other consideration that I want to make, too, is this idea of the, the values forward, the values driven with Gen Z workers. It's coming from an area of that the, the antiquated, as both Rob and Hannah, you reference, idea that businesses, whenever you're coming in as a worker, you're leaving politics at the door. That's just, it's a complete falsehood because at the end of the day, businesses are also political institutions in their own right. They are taking however much money in terms of government grants, they are lobbying, they are influencing community development, even if they aren't a governmental organization. As long as they've been around, businesses have served political needs and the leadership of business have engaged in these political actions. So really in telling your workers to not engage here, it's an attempt to scare them into inactivity on these fronts that are important for their own well-being. I'd really love to that really quickly. Sorry, before, before we transition to the next point, I just feel like I have so much to say, but I'll try and distill it down to two key things. Firstly, um, in regards to like a business participation or corporate brand participation in uh, polit political issues and activism, we actually ran a survey at UC Berkeley uh, when we were doing research on this space on like the future involvement of Gen Z. And what we found is overwhelmingly, yes, Gen Z expects brands to reflect, reflect the values of their consumers um, above, say, their corporate leadership or uh, even their employees. But it would be a huge misstep to think that um, the consumers themselves are not actually the ones who expect brands to be politically active um, and really transparent about their political positions. We're seeing consumers being 400% more likely to purchase from brands that are purpose-driven. Uh, so I really feel like this is something that's being led by the market, not necessarily just Gen Z um, as future employees. And the second thing I would love to share is just a really quick story. Mm -hmm. um, very fascinating. You can go Google it afterwards. But one of our team members is a super talented student at Harvard. And um, during the TikTok trend that was around the Nicki Minaj flag and really Gen Z um, trying to take over uh, a song that was um, really associated, I guess, on TikTok with a right-wing movement and kind of memify it using a Nicki Minaj flag instead of an American flag. Uh, that student hung that flag in their dorm and then they quickly received a letter back from the dean saying, can you take this flag down? It could be seen as offensive. And they posted that letter to Twitter and it just went viral because Nicki Minaj retweeted that. Um, and then all of a sudden the next day we had students all over the US in all of the different colleges hanging Nicki Minaj flags everywhere. And we asked our internship team across like five different campuses and everyone was like, yes, there's Nicki Minaj flags up here too. 
Um, but where it got really interesting was like the Dean's response to this. Oh, I wouldn't have written what I wrote if I had known that 150,000 people would have read it in 24 hours and now it's going viral across the internet. Um, here's, here's a few points from us on, um, on like viral, um, the impact of like viral spread. And so this student felt pretty pressured and pretty concerned about uh, their future at Harvard. So um, they really did end up taking down the flag. But in between that space, short space of time, so many other things happened, like it ended up on Fox News. Um, and then uh, the next day, Nicki Minaj actually posted some pretty, um, some comments that were considered to be anti-vax. And so then that became compromising for those students. They put a Band-Aid on Nicki's arm on the flag. Um, so just this machine of media and how that takes off is so fascinating. But I think that like the Gen Zs that we're working with are so well equipped to deal with like that in real time, the fact that they could say, put a Band-Aid on the arm of Nikki on the flag and that became their symbolic response. Like that's Gen Z activism at its finest. And I think that's super fascinating. But yes, ultimately they did take everything down um, and would choose to now remain anonymous because of uh, fear of backlash. Uh, in terms of like their college education. So really fascinating. <laughs> Love that story, Anna Grace. I feel like that encompasses yeah. so much about, you know, Gen Z's ability to change quickly with meme culture, but also about some of the pressures that Gen Z face to step into the spotlight in a activism. I think our, our next signal, you know, really talks about that a little bit more. So, you know, sticking with this topic of complexities in activism, um, I, you know, I love that we're focusing on what are some of the things uh, that we don't always hear we talk about Gen Z and activism uh, coming off of it, our Gen Z complexities report, which also dived into one of those hidden narratives. This signal really talks about the fact that activism doesn't always come from a place of empowerment for Gen Z, uh, let alone happiness. So David Price writes in Black of an experience that he had when he was young with the police showing up at his house, guns drawn with a false report of, of home uh, invasion. This is a terrifying experience for everyone, let alone a 13-year-old young Black man. So Price writes that Gen Z watched as figures who are supposed to protect were not being held accountable. How can we sit back and watch as systems and people who are laying the groundwork for a country for younger generations continue to exploit and oppress vulnerable communities? So Price is really explaining here how Gen Zers uh, have really leapt into these complex community uh, activism roles, policy roles, and a lot of them have done so out of necessity, out of facing, you know, horrific acts of exclusion or of, you know, prejudice. Um, and all of that really comes at a cost in terms of their mental health, in terms of, you know, the, the happiness of their childhood. Um, Price writes that he's really proud of his activism, but he felt like he had to sacrifice sacrifice his normal teenage years, and then he hopes that coming generations get to enjoy the luxury of their entire youth and their innocence without to sacrifice that for the cause of racial justice or for the cause of, you know, climate activism. We talk a lot about climate anxiety in the context of Gen Z. I'm curious how nonprofits, how policymakers, change-focused organizations need to better acknowledge the toll here on Gen Z's mental health. When we're asking very young people to step into roles of immense responsibility uh, and immense, um, you know, uh, negotiating very complex, very complicated issues. 
Is that a, a key for these organizations to be more relevant for Gen Z, or is it just a, a moral responsibility that organizations and, and leaders need to consider when they're asking younger people to get involved? Um, Greg, I'd love to hear your, your POV here. Yeah, thank you very much, Hannah. I think um, a few things come to mind. The first is, um, as I mentioned, used to be impact and innovation manager for Unleash, where the main activity we became, I suppose, somewhat famous for was uniting a thousand young people from 167 plus countries. Um, at least we did that in 2019, but it's always been 150 plus. And it's for a week, and it's essentially a very large hackathon. We call it a global innovation lab. And what was really interesting to us is, of course, we're bringing a methodology you know, using design thinking approaches, human-centered design. So really thinking about how you're solving problems that you're seeing in the world in matters that are really important. We're talking anything from gender equality to climate change, um, life on land, challenges of the ocean, et cetera. And the big thing that came back to us is, yes, they're innovating. But what made a huge difference for them was the fact that they didn't feel alone. The fact that they actually realized they were part of something bigger, that they had access to other people that cared about something similar to them, and that in fact they were part of a global community of people that could make a difference in the world. So the first was not feeling alone, so almost removing the sense of solitude and actually caring and wanting to make a difference. And the second element was that it's possible. You're seeing peers around you, you're seeing people around you that are making change in the most amazing ways on every single continent in countries all around the world with means that are sometimes quite minimal, but they're able to make a change. So I think just that initial change of mindset of removing the sense of solitude to actually work together and then coming in with an approach of possibility and the ability to make a difference, I think is already one switch. Um, but I think we can always go further in, in mental health support. There's, in, in, in our cases, there are facilitators that are present to work with teams, and increasingly mental health has become something we bring in, ensuring that we're checking in with the participants, ensuring that we're being inclusive about the different personalities, about the different psychological profiles, about the backgrounds that these people have, and really noticing that everyone's different, well, being, their different human who's there, will come with a different set of ways of experiencing this whole process. So there's an increase in looking at mental health and how we can really address that. Um, and the last thing that comes to mind for me, and, and of course, many of these topics are serious, they're scary, they cause anger, and there is a role to play as an organization to find a way to work with Gen Z change makers or activists and also reframing this as something that's positive or ways that we can actually make a positive difference and reframing from this fear and anger to something where it can be impactful, beautiful, life-changing, potentially even there's playfulness in that, finding ways of making this process of change something which is playful. So just some thoughts that come to mind. I do realize it's not easy, uh, but these are some things that I think we can, we can do. Oh, I love that. And I love the role that you laid out, Greg, too, of, of the how organizations can be a part of that transition uh, across generations and making it more playful and making it something that's easy for them to engage with. Um, I, you know, I'd love to take us into our next signal, actually, because I think it speaks on a lot of the things you were just talking about, Greg, but it also touches on Gen Z who are, are forced into the role of, of activists and they're kind of negotiating with that word. Molly, take us away. 
Yeah, so this next signal here comes to us from Teen Vogue. Um, it speaks about how many young Palestinians have recently found themselves thrust into international fame as videos of attacks on their neighborhoods and their own outrage went viral on social media in May of last year. Uh, take activists and siblings Muna and Mohammed El-Kurd, both 23 years old, who have become two of the most visible Palestinians in international media after one of their own videos went viral. Time Magazine recently placed them on their list of 100 most influential people of 2021, after which Mohammed reached nearly a million combined followers across Twitter and Instagram. Elkerd believes the media has long perpetuated harmful archetypes of Palestinians, a narrative he feels that he and others have been able to push back on by sharing their experiences on social media. There's this hijacking of our language, of our reality as Palestinian people, that we were able to overturn this summer, he said. But the newfound attention is not without its drawbacks. In Palestine, reports indicate that online visibility can heighten people's risk of arrest. And while attaching faces and names to a movement can help a message resonate throughout media cycles, it also leaves real people weighted with a new responsibility and level of attention that can become harmful. Says Adnan Bark, a 21-year-old activist and influencer, I'm just afraid that I will be stuck in that image forever to be that Palestinian activist. I feel like I want to do more things in my life than to be stuck in the world of the occupation. So a question for the panel, and maybe I'll throw this one out to, um, to Ben to start in person. Being an internet celebrity and an influencer is stressful in its own right, but what are some of the other added pressures that we're seeing today for young adults that come from being a public activist in today's climate? Of course, being an activist always has really come with its stressors, but I think with the added social media pressures, we often see kind of new layers here. So what can society, policy, brands, organizations do to better support them through this process? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm thinking about our briefing yesterday where we talked about Lizzo running that master class and how to apologize when you screw up. Because, I mean, these young Palestinian activists, you know, they're, they're just people, right? Like, they're, they're, they, they have a million followers, but at some point they're going to say something off or something they didn't mean. And, you know, one of the complicated things there is it's hard to be this voice of, of, of reason or this voice of, of, of activism knowing that at some point you're going to say something a little off, right? Because nobody is perfect. And so that is part of the pressure there because you don't want the little mistake that you unintentionally make or, or whatever and apologize for to, to impact your entire message. And so I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is that, look, one of the people who is uh, sending, you know, young Palestinian activists, uh, making them successful on TikTok is like, you know, uh, the like uh, the, the, the prime minister of Israel, right? Uh, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Politics changes this. Uh, a story breaks through in part because of um, external factors. And so not only do these people have to understand their message and have to be careful with the way that they speak, they also need to learn how to read the news and read the room, right? And some of their messages may not make it through and others might based on what's happening out there in, uh, you know, in the, in the news. We, we're paying more attention to Ukrainian uh, activists now than we did before as well, right? And they, you know, Vladimir Putin has a big role to play in that. So I think it's about deftly reading the media in, in a lot of ways. And that can produce a lot of anxiety because it's not just the message you're putting out there. It's, it's the, the, the path that it has going, going forward. That's a big responsibility to yeah, place totally. on, on yeah, yeah. someone's shoulder. I, you know, I'm curious, Anna Grace, just because you would spend a lot of time talking with, uh, you know, Gen Z every day who are kind of engaging with this. Do you feel like you were just talking about that level of, of meme literacy, right? Do you think that the Gen Z you're talking with also have that level of media literacy to navigate some of these complex minefields? 
100%. I mean, if we reflect on when Gen Z are creating their public identity, their public digital identity, we're seeing a lot of Gen Z starting as early as eight years old, or even earlier if their parents made them an account. Um, like this concept of, oh, Facebook's for 13 has radically changed. Like we're seeing so many eight-year-olds on TikTok uh, creating content. And so I don't, um, <laughs> I don't know if we can kind of put them in a box anymore and think about like, oh, at what point does someone um, reach a stage where we think that they're um, mature or responsible enough to handle this like public identity? It's starting from childhood for them. Um, but I also think it's really important that we don't remove um, their agency in like thinking that you need to uh, protect or that there is a way that you could protect um, that I think would be really effective in the sense that like, for instance, our first impact influencer uh, on Stash Run, Ethan Kelly, he's a political YouTuber who's been running his um, YouTube channel, Let's Talk Politics, like all through high school, meeting with um, political leaders who are literally like he would have people from the Trump administration contacting him because they're watching his channel from the White House. Like that's how seriously um, the content and the discourse of these creators is being taken. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that uh, they necessarily need protecting in the sense that they're not capable of managing their own identities. I think what's um, what's important, though, is that every message they put out there, you can't see as um, being necessarily their message. Like the media machine can take any message and use it for their own political will. And that's what I think is dangerous and sometimes it's hard to deal with, um, particularly in this culture of memification, because a lot of what Gen Z says is very sarcastic. Like um, their power is in their humor. Mm. Um, they're masters of message and they can literally create messages, multi-layered messages that they can communicate in short form content in an eight second TikTok. Um, so like this long form media um, and say um, mainstream like cable TV kind of format of communication is really uh, dead <laughs> for that generation. Um, but what it means is that they can keep responding in real time and that every single message they put out there can take on its own meaning or its own identity well well beyond what was intended or what was initially said. Um, so I think it's more about young people who are participating publicly uh, in these spaces, being um, very aware of how they work um, and almost like the rules of engagement. And I would say one other point finally is that I do think that... Um, I do think that Gen Z talks about like becoming desensitized a lot um, because when like for for those of us who formed friendship in private spheres, the concept of criticism can be really frightening. But for them, they're literally receiving hundreds of thousands of comments that um, are this huge mixture of like fan culture and also criticism. And so I think they, they're they starting to receive those messages quite differently to how future generations would have where you would sit and read every single comment that someone wrote to you and think deeply about it. Um, so for them, it's really about finding their crowd and being polarizing is also okay. Um, so yeah, I would just think about like agency and um, the fact that some of them are very cleverly constructing their identities and transforming them in digital spaces.
Yeah, I think acknowledging that agency, and, and you said the word empowerment a lot, feels very important if you're considering your role as an organization, a nonprofit, as you know, even someone from an older generation in the context of uh, the employer-employee relationship. Um, but you know, this this concept of identity too is really critical when we think about some of the ways that Gen Z are coming to their activism, and I think this flows really nicely to our next signal, Molly. Yeah, so Florida's Don't Say Gay legislation has really put a spotlight on Florida student activists as they're struggling to navigate hostile school administrations and state legislatures while fighting for the safe spaces that they've created over the years. Two-thirds of LGBTQ plus youth reported negative mental health impacts around such legislation, according to a report from the Trevor Project. As the first openly gay class president of his high school in Osprey, Florida, Xander Mork said that he was warned by school administrators against discussing his activism or from even using the word gay in his graduation address. My high school career has been a fight, he told The Independent. I chose for it to be, and I don't regret that it was, but it was a four-year fight. Moritz is a founder of the Social Equity and Education Initiative, which started as an on-campus club but has rapidly snowballed into a national organization that connects Gen Z activists with resources, mentors, legal aid, and quote, anything that we have that they need. Moritz is not alone in his efforts. Hundreds of LGBTQ plus students in Florida and their allies have walked out of classes and staged protests on their campuses and in the state capitol the past month, while young organizers across the US are collaborating on social media and sharing resources otherwise barred under broad critical race theory bans or book censorship and building their own curriculums to combat discriminatory school policies. So question here for the panel, you know, we've talked about the adverse effects we're seeing that shouldering these weighty responsibilities can have for young activists today. Um, but Trevor, maybe I'll, we'll start at this one out with you. For these, you know, high school and college students, do you think that this intense focus on activism is coming from a place of necessity rather than desire? Um, and how do you kind of see this impacting maybe their future decisions, how they kind of act in the future, particularly when it comes to post-educational pursuits? I, I definitely think that it comes from a space of necessity. Um, as a bisexual Gen Z activist in this space, these are things that I, I look at, and it's important that people recognize when we're talking from a policy perspective that no legislation is settled, no case is settled. Look at Roe right now. I mean, we have an extremist Supreme Court that is trying to backpedal decades of just judicial standing for something that the greater American public doesn't support. Uh, so these are things that, these are basic human rights and those are a lot easier to lose than they are to regain. So whenever I look out, whenever I see um, the, just Ron DeSantis talking about these things, first of all, gay. Uh, but also, it's important that we recognize how easily all of these things can be lost, because look at how long it took for us to get to them, and look at how quickly it can be turned back around. Uh, this is a matter of survival, and it's not just for queer communities. This is a starting point, because it's very easy to attack, just with some of the polarization issues that we consider. Uh, but, I mean, this is a matter of bodily autonomy for anybody. This is a matter of privacy protections for anybody. Uh, and so the slow creeping of civil rights boosting versus the very fast avalanche of fascism is a hard one to fight, but it's one that we have to if we want to even be able to have these conversations, let alone be able to push forward the things that we discuss in them. 
That's a really important point you just brought up, Trevor, uh, about how quickly right go away. And I think there's a huge difference in millennials. You know, as a millennial activist, I things are just getting better and better. We've got the marriage, Roe v. Wade is ironclad versus Gen Z now who are, are seeing more of these existential threats. Uh, Greg, I, I'm curious if you feel like that, that shift changed the types of activism that Gen Z uh, are really galvanizing for. Are they looking for, you know, more um, direct action or, or are they looking for things that are outside of legislation because they've lost faith in legislation? When it comes to, you know, what Gen Z really wants to accomplish with their activism, what are, what are you seeing in your work? Well, I'm seeing a mix of solutions, really. I think when we're looking at it, it's solutions that different Gen Z or even more broadly young people, we have people up age 30, 35. Um, and we look at the solutions. And when I say solutions, it could be, yes, a campaign. Yes, it can be working on policy change. It can be system change. But it can be people that are actually developing services, products, apps, um, and even products that are just making a, a difference in the world. And I think that any solution that someone is putting putting forward where they're actually taking action is making a difference and if that goes from a campaign which is making significant change in gender equality in new york or it's a group of young people in indonesia that are making a sunscreen that can protect coral reefs versus destroying them I'm, i see that as as different ways of putting in action their values into the world and so really, I think what we're seeing is it's about the solutions and it's about what, the ways that we're finding of improving the status quo and improving and solving some of these big challenges that we're facing as a global collective. So it's broad. And I think it's, to me, it's a valuable way also of looking at it because where my passion lies also is scale. So if there's an ability for something to scale, regardless of, of a campaign or an app, a platform, a method, a way of thinking, um, it's going to make a significant difference. So speaking of solutions, maybe let's skip to, to something that we're seeing coming from, from Snapchat, from a brand that is obviously deeply embedded with Gen Z. So in our Gen Z complexities report, we were talking a little bit about the fact that, well, Gen Z is very political. That doesn't necessarily mean that they want to align themselves with traditional political institutions or parties. What we're starting to see now is that some Gen Zers are ready to take on the system from the inside, running for office, and making sure that there is Gen Z representation within civic engagement. So Snapchat has built a, a run for office tool. It shows users different open positions with their zip code. It pairs interested users with candidate recruitment organizations across the political spectrum. Uh, Sophia Gross, who's Snapchat's head of social impact, notes that 6% of state legislators are under 35 years old, which is why the feature is really encouraging Gen Z to run in races that have largely gone uncontested. I, Greg, I love this as maybe part of the broad solutions that we can have, getting directly involved and in leading change from the inside. My question for the, the panel is, as Gen Z age and becoming an elected official becomes more of a, a viable option for them, what do we think is going to change about political discourse and activism on social media as we have a sort of socially literate and native candidates who are going to be running these races? I'll jump in here for a second, because uh, I, I think really quickly that we have to think about uh, a Gen Zer who just lost their job, Madison Cawthorn, right? As you guys may recall, he's like the 26-year-old congressman, still a congressman, from uh, Western North Carolina, who had a lot of embarrassing stuff leaked uh, 
uh, about him. And the issue is that a lot of it was like sort of like fratty homoerotic stuff, but he ran as this like incredibly conservative guy. And like, had he not been that person, we might have just said this is like embarrassing behavior, but it ran counter to his brand. So I'm all for Gen Z getting involved. I think they need to think about this stuff differently and lean in a little bit some radical transparency to perhaps if something embarrassing leaks, say something to the effect of like, yeah, that's me, it's part of who I am, and move on from it. And what you know killed Madison Cawthorn, his, his re-election, was that he ran saying he was one thing and these videos proved he was something else. So it's great to get them involved, but we have to think about kind of what the future, I mean, what would a gen, uh, what that Gen Z political scandal is going to look like ultimately. Rob, sorry, I interrupted. Did you have thoughts? Yeah, I, just, well, I think that's a great point. One additional layer to it that I'll add, you know, from a social media perspective is uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, platforms and, and, and new young leaders emerging. And we can start to shift some of these policy conversations more honed in on, you know, personal experiences, personal stories, right? Because uh, for me, that is what really, you know, pushes policy forward. I think that too frequently, regardless of the side of the political spectrum that we're talking about, things often start, you know, at sort of a, like policy wonkiness down. And I think that what you know, certain campaigns and certain movements across the political spectrum are starting to see success within is sort of focusing in on this person in this community that's experiencing this problem or their community is experiencing X, Y, Z economic challenges uh, <clears throat> or this individual might be uh, experiencing uh, equity issues at school or at work. And those stories going up to impact policy decision-making uh, and, and, and sort of policy creation. So I look forward to social media and other virtual platforms creating those pathways for these more personal stories, hopefully through the vessels of younger candidates. Uh, but regardless of the candidate, the, thinking about social media, Hannah, your question, those stories sort of going bottom up to impact policy and have policy go less from that sort of top-down approach that I think we're already seeing change around. But if you look back at the last 20, 30, 40 years of policymaking, it's been more from that sort of top-down approach, you know, think tanks to traditional institutions, to policymakers, to lobbyists and down, going more from that grassroots individual story place up and into those institutions and still flowing through them into the policymakers' hands uh, will be a really uh, 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 exciting change to see take shape over the next you know, 5, 10, 20 years. Rob, I love that coming from the, the bottom up. Uh, Anna Grace, I see you coming off mute. Have some thoughts? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really ironic because Sabo, one of our team members, uh, interns actually just got off a call to join this culture briefing uh, with Sophia from Snapchat. And so uh, she's just texting me in the background saying like, that's exactly what they were talking about, what Ben mentioned earlier. It's all about radical transparency. So we're seeing Gen Z actually posting clips of the campaign trail and what's going on behind the scenes. Um, I think that makes them much more authentic candidates. It's easier for young people to identify with. Um, just in terms of discourse and like this uh, interweaving of the world of social media, uh, we were talking about with our team how um, really like this I guess movement of infographics is so interesting that everyone's now participating with infographics um, in TikTok content or in like short form media. Um, 
And then secondly, we were talking about how creative Gen Z is in the way that they campaign, primarily, primarily because most of them are engaging um, with these kind of public political spheres from such a young age, well before they're able to vote. And so they have to be creative in coming up with ways that they can affect political change. Um, and I think we're seeing that with so many groups like Gen Z for Change, um, who are thinking about, well, how do we participate in the conversation, but not just participate, how do we um, affect change and we can't do it through our votes so I think that we're seeing all kinds of cool political mm -hmm. tactics emerging from teenagers uh, that they can then take with them uh, uh, to build real political platforms when they start to run um, as recognized or bona fide political leaders. Anna Grace can I build off that really really quick there is an onion headline that I've always loved where it's like Republicans leading with young voters who look like old voters <laughs> You know, there was that kid in everyone's high school class who wore the bow ties and was, like, obsessed with, like, I don't know, Reaganism or, or whatever, like, William F. Buckley. And, like, that felt inauthentic because it's like you're not a Reagan era. You're not a Reaganite, right? And so what's really interesting is seeing, just as Anna Grace was getting at, these people who are steeped in political cultures from this really young age but are like, hey, I'm young and I'm not going to pretend that I, like, read the, like, the National Review uh, or whatever. There is a youthful way to be politically engaged now. And I think what's cool about Snapchat and TikTok and all those and Instagram is that it lets you do that and still be authentic, just as uh, Anna Grace was getting at. Can I also just add an element there about um, a piece that I think is really important when we're looking at politics and elections, a massive piece is around trust. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting work done by Green and Maester, who came up with what's called the trust equation. I don't know if this rings a bell for anyone. But they essentially looked at it pretty much mathematically and they said, well, trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-interest. So there's an advantage, I think, for Gen Z on two of those elements in a strong way. I think one is intimacy. Never before really have people been able to be so open and are being so open and vulnerable and transparent. And the second, I think, is self-interest. And what that means is the higher the self-interest, actually, the lower the trust. The lower the self-interest, the more you're actually showing that you care about everyone else and not just yourself, the higher the trust. So they have a strong advantage there in actually showing that they care for broader collective people. Now, on the other side, maybe where there's a challenge, and I think this is, will be interesting to see in the future, is what about credibility and reliability? So how can Gen Z also demonstrate that they have credibility in what they're proposing and what they're advancing in their own campaigns? And then reliability, are they actually going to deliver on these things that they're suggesting? So to me, that's the question mark, but I think there's a really interesting advantage on, on two of those trust elements. Some of the, the things that, the themes that we've brought up, um, trust, you know, authenticity, reliability. I mean, these are all core things that we talk about when we're, we're talking more generally about how Gen Z engage with social media. So I, I think it'll be very fascinating to see. Well, never before have we had such a huge split in the types of political candidates we're going to have and their relationship to what social media provides and how they want to use it. So I, I'd love to talk about, you know, one of the, the most authentic and unfiltered uh, platforms out there, although I don't, I don't know how you would rate off the credibility scale. Molly, do you want to take us through how Gen Z is using TikTok in their activism? Yeah, absolutely. You guys all know that I love a good TikTok signal. Um, these next two are actually going to tag together from Politico and Wired. 
Um, this is about this organization called Gen Z for Change, founded by an 18-year-old Aiden Cohn Murphy. Um, this is a coalition of about 500 progressive social media influencers. The coalition's primary stomping ground is TikTok, where their influencer network collectively boasts upwards of 500 million followers, a figure that far exceeds the average monthly viewerships of Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC combined. Gen Z for Change has already mobilized its followers to carry out a handful of unorthodox online activism, from crashing an anti-abortion whistleblower line in Texas with raunchy memes, to flooding Starbucks with 88,000 fake job applications after the company fired several employees for attempting to unionize. But the organization has higher ambitions. As more politicians begin using TikTok to reach young voters, the organization is building closer ties with Democrats in Washington in the hopes of not only commenting on policy, but actually influencing it. However, that is easier said than done. The group has garnered enough attention that they were recently featured in an SNL sketch in which President Biden and the White House press secretary solicited advice on the war in Ukraine from a group of ditzy TikTok stars. The sketch confirmed Cohn Murphy's suspicion that even as politicians ramp up their outreach efforts to content creators, the country still hasn't grasped TikTok's power as a political tool. Mm. While Gen Z for Change has co-hosted a town hall with Anthony Fauci about COVID vaccines and even facilitated an influencer briefing about Biden's Build Back Better plan, these initiatives have raised suspicions that the organization and its coalition of influencers are, in effect, unpaid propagandists for the White House. Um, so question here, and maybe I think we'll start with Rob, who is our policy and philanthropy lead. You know, what's your opinion on these TikTok political activists? Are they a force to be reckoned with? And if so, what do you think it's going to take for the country and politicians themselves to take their social media activism more seriously? Uh, thank, thank you, Molly. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not the first. I'm far from the first and far from the last to see TikTok as an amazing tool for galvanizing movements, for sharing personal stories, which I mentioned before in a very unvarnished way. It's funny, as just a conversation with my wife last night, we were talking about TikTok and how, you know, so many aspects of the average TikTok video, regardless of the subject matter, feel so much more unvarnished, right, than the average Instagram story. Right? There's something very, like, uh, uh, visceral around TikTok, and it can really shape public opinion around a particular issue area. And we've seen, obviously, TikTok armies focusing on an issue and moving the needle, right, based on galvanizing those online communities. Uh, we'd see time and time again that TikTok has a high-impact tool to mobilize and make heavy topics more digestible and more accessible. Uh, where I think we are now is we're at this sort of maturation period, right? Where I'm really uh, um, excited to see how these online movements can start to really take tangible shape, you know, uh, in, into real, into communities, like out on the streets and really start to see, I think the dots connect, right? From sort of like online, the power of online armies that can tangibly move the needles of public opinion and sort of, you know, prevent sort of fringe communities from hijacking a topic, right? And 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 start to, uh, you know, create misinformation. Uh, quite frankly, so I'm really excited to see those dots connect, and I think that it's going to require, you know, borrowing that sort of transparency uh, comments we've heard from a couple of folks. You know, transparency, communication authentic engagement, right, to start to, you know, bring those sort of the political apparatus 
and those tools for galvanizing communities more closely together in ways that are more authentic, ways that find sort of issues of shared interest, right, rather than things that might feel more manufactured. Um, and I think that we're going to get there. I think it's already happening uh, and it's going to be really exciting because I think in the end, bringing these, you know, TikTok and, and platforms we haven't even seen before into the process, right, um, is going to bring more people into the process. And that's what we want. We want more people engaged, more people voting uh, and, and, and things like this are only going to help facilitate that. Absolutely. I love that. And I love, I think that's a great note to end on. More people involved, more people engaged. Let's move into some wrap-ups. Um, Anna Grayson and Greg, I, I'd like to know from, from you, for nonprofits, for brands that are, are trying to think about how to engage with Gen Z around their activism, what's the biggest takeaway from all of this? What is the role that they should be thinking about playing in you know, areas that are sensitive and yet highly impactful? And, and Greg, maybe we'll start with you. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's multiple ways, um, and there's maybe two or three things here that come to mind. So one, I think general support, um, and that can be across the board from financial, technical information, you know, data, or the infrastructure that the people might need to be able to run their activities, uh, potentially even expertise. I mean, there's different people within organizations that are capable of providing key expertise and supporting, enabling um, different Gen Z that are actually going about these solutions, as I was calling them. So I think that's the one element. The second is, if they are to commit support, there's a need for honesty and transparency in whichever for-profit or brand that is. Um, I think there's far too much greenwashing or all the different spectrums of organizations making promises that ultimately are, are, are empty. So I think if there is commitment and there is support, what needs to follow is very clear impact measurement and communication about what they actually are doing underneath the bonnet, that they're not just supporting and looking great on the outside, but continuing business as usual and destroying the planet on the inside. So I think there's this, this double approach of yes, supporting, yes, finding the right ways to, to be an enabler, um, but do it with honesty, do it with transparency and do it in a committed and, and honest way. Grace, over to you. I would just build off what Rob was saying quickly and say, I already think that this authentic activism um, is playing out on the ground in the real world outside of TikTok right now. Like we looked at, um, at the instance with Starbucks and Gen Z for Change and you know them getting flooded with however many 80,000 fake uh, resumes. But I, like I've got students texting me right now from UT Austin telling me how they were on the ground outside Starbucks actively protesting and then their Starbucks started to allow union, union, unionization, can't say that word, as a result of, um, of their protests like that were happening happening in real time. So they were seeing that change. And um, so I think there's this real uh, feedback loop going on between brands and between organizations and this generation as a result of TikTok or these social media vehicles. And so I think for brands, what's most important right now is that they can keep their finger on the pulse. Traditionally, impact programs have been the result of, say, a whole year's worth of strategizing and consultancy to say, okay, we're going to support this one nonprofit or this one cause. But really brands have to be able to move so quickly now to keep the pace of consumers
consumers and of young people. So I think um, being able to engage with platforms and with algorithms um, and with individuals that bring them closer to the marketplace is absolutely essential. And then the second thing I would say really quickly is for us at Stashrun, um, I would agree with like uh, Gregory, it's all about radical transparency. So it's not cool to say, hey, this percentage of your Starbucks coffee goes to X um, nonprofit, but it's like, when does it get there? Like tomorrow, next week? Mm. And what is the impact of that? And I am I like completely divorced from that impact or am I at the center of that impact? So letting these donations and letting these outcomes run through the hands or the fingertips of Gen Z is what will both build impact for brands from like a sales and marketing perspective and provide the transparency that Gen Z expects to see these moves as authentic. Those are such great points. Rob, I, I'd love to hand it over to yeah. you about really quickly. What are the sort of big, you know, human-centric policy and institutional implications from today's briefing? First of all, I just want to say, Anna Grace, I could not agree more. You know, one of the topics we discussed a lot in our uh, Future of Giving report is that idea of impact. You know, mm-hmm. before, if I'm giving, it's, oh, I'm going to give to, you know, dig wells in water-strained communities. Now people want to see the well. You know, I want to see it being dug. I want to see communities benefiting from it. I want to see that impact. Uh, could not agree more with those comments. You know, for me, uh, Hannah, you know, something that I thought a lot about uh, as we were going through this briefing today is a piece that I know we've discussed between the two of us uh, very recently, which is this piece around, you know, philanthropy in the metaverse. And that was not a piece specific to Gen Z and activism, but it really resonates true here. You know, I see a lot of opportunity to bring activism into, you know, AR, VR, XR environments, you know, the metaverse or whatever language and semantics you want to apply to it, and using those environments to create real movements, you know, not just around content and highly followed content and and trending content, right? You know, you, it's very easy to envision a, a, a near and, and, and a near future where new institutions are sprouting up in these spaces to capture the energy of young people and, and people in general as these environments become more mainstreaming. And may very well act as new engagement and community building paths for political parties, for issue-focused advocacy groups, for philanthropic infrastructures, right? It's this whole untapped space of creativity, uh, of, of, of 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 engagement. And I think that it's going to be a really exciting place where, again, new institutions or new extensions of existing institutions will sprout up very, very quickly to nurture and facilitate activism among among young people. Amazing. Ben and Trevor, over to you holding us down in studio. What is your one big takeaway for Gen Z consumers from today's briefing? I actually want to piggyback it exactly off of what Rob just said with that metaverse plug. I think on the brand side of this, it's important to recognize, like we've been talking about what individual Gen Zers have been able to do with their communities, the power that they've been able to wield here. But Activism is hard, it is a daily practice, it is imperfect, so it's good for brands and activists in general to recognize that activism hasn't gotten easier, it's become more efficient. And so whenever we're talking about these offerings that brands can give, 
I love to organize on Discord. I use my Twitter every single day to check the news and what activists I'm following are doing. There are great channels of communication here that can be utilized effectively. And I think that that is something that as Gen Z is growing into this greater power, if they're going to be then running for those offices that Snapchat is helping them to find, there's a really effective intersection there. And then just on the collectivism and Gen Z side of that, that somewhat comes into the brands, but not directly is just the recognition of that imperfection. I think that something my generation has an issue with is trying to make that perfectly coalesced, everyone is thinking this same thing sort of ideology. And I think it's very important that they recognize that that may then just create the same issues that we're fighting. So it's very important whenever we're looking at this collective action standpoint that we're being accepting of someone who is outside of our own head. And I think a very effective way of bringing that together is those channels of communication, that global outreach, that digital outreach that we can use to effectively learn from one another. I'll keep mine uh, pretty short. I love what Greg was saying about how loneliness is an impediment to activism, that we need to see uh, other people going through the same challenges to keep us moving. So my takeaway for brands is consider yourself a space where you can bring down some of that loneliness and connect people, and then you'll make things a little bit easier for everybody. Love, love a short and sweet takeaway. So that is our briefing for today. Greg, Anna Grace, thank you so much to you both for, for joining this conversation. You can join us for Culture Briefings Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at noon Eastern on our LinkedIn page. So until next time, consider yourself free.